Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'll be reading all the verses, even though there are 36 verses. Following your Bibles as we read Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Want ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession again to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there's also a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of, of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, have they stumbled, that they should, not, that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles, to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. And if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first, first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and, and they, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not thyself against the branches." But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, of them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt... Thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. If thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sin, 
as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as, as touching election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye, as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy on all. O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you've given us the scripture. It answers the question concerning Israel. And I pray that we might believe what you say and understand, Lord, that you do have a future for the children of Israel. But we thank you, Lord, that we have a part of the blessings. Jesus himself came to this earth as a Jew, and he was born and died for us. And he rose again for us from the grave, and he's living today. We thank you so much for that. I pray, Lord, that we might understand that without Jesus, we have no hope. And so I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, that today they will trust you before it's too late. Give enablement to bring this message, and we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Many in Christianity today do not believe that there is a future for Israel. In fact, I believe we could say that most mainline Christian denominations do not believe that God will restore Israel to a place of blessing and fulfill his promises to them. They do not believe in a national conversion of Israel in the future, nor a 1,000-year reign of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. These Christians, and I do believe many of them truly know the Lord, they believe in what is called replacement theology, also referred to as fulfillment theology, and sometimes an older term is supersessionism. They believe the church has replaced Israel, or that the church is Israel, or is Israel, or Israel is the church. Therefore, they say that all God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church. Many of these are what we call amillennialist. An amillennialist is a person who does not believe in the millennial reign of Christ on this earth. Ah is, is the prefix, which that says no, no millennium. So they're amillennialists. And they don't believe that Jesus will rule and reign on, physically on this earth for 1,000 years. They also do not believe in the rapture. And I would say that uh, most mainline churches, not counting the, the Baptists, most Baptists believe in a rapture and a thousand-year reign of Christ, but most of them don't. I think you could list in that Presbyterians and Methodists and uh, others and Catholics, and, and uh, a lot of them do not believe in a literal reign of Christ, and they do not believe in the rapture. But the 11th chapter of Romans teaches clearly that God has guaranteed a future for Israel, the first verse begins with the question, has God cast away his people? This was an appropriate question because Paul has painted a sad picture for Israel in, verse, in chapters 9 and 10. 
You see, he reminded us in, in chapters 9 and 10 that Israel had not attained to the law of righteousness, chapter 9, verse 31. In verse 32 and 3, he said that they had stumbled at the stumbling stone, and that's Jesus, and who became to them a rock of offense. Chapter 10, verse 3, he says they had not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And chapter 10, verse 21, it says they have been a disobedient and a gainsaying people. In fact, they got angry and jealous when they found out that Gentiles were accepting Christ as their Savior. Therefore, it was only natural for the Romans to whom Paul was writing this letter to ask the question, well, then is God through with the Jew? I mean, is there still a purpose or a plan for the Jew? And Paul answers that question by asking, first of all, his own question so he can answer it. And he says, has God cast away his people? And his short version of the answer is, God forbid. In other words, he says, no, by no means, by no means. Or today it would be like this. No way, no way has God cast away his people. Then Paul went on to explain his answer. Why is he saying, no, God has not cast away his people? He answers that question, and I found it as I read this passage over and over. There were some words that stuck out, and I made the outline from those words, and all those words begin and are. Very convenient. You know, lots lots of times we as preachers like to have uh, our message to be alliterated, that means they start with the same letter. The, the points do. What just so happens in this passage, all these different things are in the passage itself, and they start with R. And so we're going to begin, and I've given you an outline this morning so you can follow, because I think it's important for us to see this, because this is a very important subject. Yes, God does, does have a future for Israel. And we look at it as we see in this passage. Let's begin by the remnant of Israel. We find this, the Lord speaks of the remnant. Of the remnant, He says in verses 1, I say then, if God cast away his people, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? And he maketh, that how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed the prophets, dig down thine altars, I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the scripture of God? What, what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So there's the word remnant. The word remnant means a small remaining number of people. So out of a whole bunch of people, there's a small amount that consists that make up the remnant. And so he's talking about the remnant. He says it's according to the election of grace, which is also mentioned in chapter 9. Now this fact that he has a remnant is proven by Paul in his argument here by, by men of God. And he mentions three, first of all, himself. Look at verse 1. He says, God, hath, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, I'm an Israelite. God hasn't cast me off. And so, no, God hasn't. And then he mentions another person, and that's Elijah. And he says Elijah uh, was praying to God against Israel. I noticed that he was praying against Israel. 
In other words, he was complaining to the Lord about Israel, and he said, of all these Israelites, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And God corrected him and said, no, Elijah, that's not true. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That means out of all the Israelites, Elijah, I I have a remnant. You and 7,000 at least uh, that have not bowed, bowed the knee, so I have a remnant. So he proves it by Elijah. He also proves it by present day believers. Look at verse 5. At this present time, there is a remnant. Now, Paul is writing, and he says, at this present time, while Paul is living, he said, there's a remnant. We go back to the beginning in the book of Acts, after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended up into heaven. The Bible says the disciples got together in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, and it says the number of them was 120. So out of all the Israelites, there was 120. There was the remnant. That remnant increased because Peter preached the message on the, on the day of Pentecost, and the Bible says in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that 3,000 souls were added to the church. 3,000 souls were, eight, were saved. So out of all the, the Israelites and probably millions at that time, uh, only there were 3,000 plus 120 that were saved. And then later in chapter 4, he says that there were 5,000 men added. So that means 8,120 at the very beginning. So God had a remnant. Now, out of all of Israel, it was a small remnant, but God had a remnant. So he proved it by the the men of God he mentions. Also, he promised it by his method. How is God going to have a remnant? Well, it's by grace. God's method is grace. You see, there would be no chance for us to be saved if it wasn't for grace. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve to go to heaven. And it's all by the grace of God. So God's method in making sure he has a remnant is grace, unmerited favor. Now, the Bible tells us that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. And it's not through what you do. It's not through how good you are. It's not through how religious you are. It's not through how sincere you are. It's through Jesus and what he did for you, not what you do for him. And the Bible makes it clear, John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he says, I'm the door. There's only one door. I'm the door. And he says, I'm the way. No way to get to heaven except me. Jesus is the way. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other, any, any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So there's only one way, and that's Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was preaching, and verse 13 and 14 says, He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the, is the, is the, the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go that way. Many people going to hell. When I was a kid, I remember a pastor one time saying this, and it shocked me. He said, he said I want you to know almost everybody's going to hell. What? <laughs> but it's true. Almost everybody's going to hell. It's a remnant that's going to heaven. Most people are going to hell, and that's what Jesus said. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go, uh, go that way. But then he went on to say this. 
but straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth in life, and few there be that find it. So many go to hell, few go to heaven. When you're talking about all the population of the world, it's just a remnant, it's a small bunch that goes to heaven. How do we get there? By grace. We don't deserve it, but it's by grace. And we believe what Jesus did for us, and he forgives all of our sins and gives us his righteousness. It's by grace. So the remnant is, is guaranteed by the Lord, and the remnant of Israel is guaranteed by the Lord because he said he would do that. He would keep a remnant. And then the ne- notice the next thing I want to mention is the rest, the rest of Israel. We find this in verse 7. And it says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, that's the remnant, and the rest were blinded. So there's two groups of people here in dealing with Israel. There's the remnant and there's the rest. The rest are blinded. All the rest have not trusted Jesus. All the rest have not submitted to him. All the rest have been disobedient and gainsaying, and they would not receive Christ. And all the rest were not saved. And so there's the remnant, and then there's the rest. And then look at this. There's the recompense of Israel. We find it in verse 8, and he says this. But what saith it? The wor- I'm sorry, that's chapter 10. Verse 8, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David said, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. The word recompense means a giving back in return, or a retribution. In other words, because of their disobedience, God did this to them. And so there's the uh, recompense. And then he he speaks of the table. Look at verse 9. But David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Their table. The table, I think, speaks of their privileges as the children of God, as as the children of Israel, who were God's people. It was their privilege to sit at the table with the Lord. The Bible mentions the table in, in, in the Old Testament. It mentions that the Lord would allow them to eat in his presence. And I believe it pictured communion with him. Many times the sacrifices would come in, and those sacrifices were for the, for the priests to eat. And so the, they would do the sacrifice, but the meat itself they would reserve, and that would be saved for the priests to eat because they didn't have an inheritance, and the Lord used that way to feed them and their families, and the priests ate the meat. But there were times like the peace offerings and other special feast days where the children of Israel participated in that and they would offer it to the Lord and then they would eat it. And they would eat it with gladness. And they would rejoice before the Lord. And they were participating with the Lord in communion with the Lord and with his table. But the problem was they began to trust in that table rather than the one that it represented. And that it it represented communion with Christ And in Paul's day, he had preached Christ, and he was telling them what these things represented. But they rejected that. They loved the table. They loved the sacrifices. They loved all that participation in feast days and all that. But they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so their table became a stumbling block to them. And they trusted in the table rather than in the Lord. And the result was recompense. Now let's notice three recompense that the Lord gave them. 
And we find it, first of all, in verse, verse 8. And he says, according as written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. God gives them judicial blindness. I've mentioned it before. God says, if you won't, and you say, you will not trust me, you will not trust me, you will not trust me, if the time might come where God will say, you can't, I will not allow you. And so you've rebelled against the Lord, and you've spurned his love, and you've turned against him, and the day will come when the Lord will say, all right, I'm not going to let you now. You had your chance. You had your opportunity. You said no to me over and over and over again, and that was true of the children of Israel. God said, I sent them judicial blindness. They had eyes to see, but they couldn't see. They had ears to hear, but they couldn't hear. He also sent them judicial servitude. Look at verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their, ne- their back always. Bow down their back always talks about servitude, and it speaks of the children of Israel. Of course, it happened during when, the times back in the Old Testament when they were carried off into captivity. But Paul's talking about his day here, and he says they're, they're gonna, they're bow, their back's going to be bowed down. So what was God's recompense unto them? It was the judicial servitude, and we find it in their history. The Bible, or not the Bible, but history tells us that in A.D. 70, 70 A.D., Titus came in and he destroyed, conquered Jerusalem. And so he was bringing the Israelites under servitude. They had been under the Roman government, but it came even more. They destroyed their city. And many of those that were in that city escaped or some of them, you might say, and they went to a place called Masada. And Masada was a high fortress, and my wife and I have been there. And the time we were there, we went up to that top of that hill, and what those people did, they, not when we were there, but what they did back in those days, they fled to Masada. And when they got to Masada, uh, the, the Romans couldn't get, get to them. But the Romans persisted, and they built a mound or a ramp up to the top of that hill, to that city, so they could reach to them. And what they did, they used Jewish servants to build the ramp. So the Jews at the top wouldn't kill the people who were building the ramp because they were their own people. And they finally got up to the top of that hill, Masada, and they found out those that were left had killed themselves. They would not submit to Rome. But it was showing that, uh, that they were under servitude. And that has continued. That's continued. You remember the, or you don't remember, but you've heard about, and some of you might remember, but the death camps, the death camps of Hitler. And over 6 million Jews, there's been different estimates. I saw one estimate of 6,700,000 and some thousand Jews. We don't know for sure, but there were many Jews who were killed. That's because Hitler was a wicked man and a spiteful man, and he was against the children of Israel. But that's not the only reason. It's because God said, because you would not believe me and you spurned my love over and over again, I'm going to make it so that you're going to be uh, afflicted through all the ages, or through many ages, and they were, and they are today. And so they're afflicted. Even today, they're back in their land, but they're not there in peace <laughs> I mean, they have to all the time be careful about what's happening around them because they're surrounded by enemies, and they don't know. They might be shopping someday, and a missile hit them. 
It's a, a fearful place in, in Israel because of this very thing. They have they are experienced the recompense of, of ser- judicial servitude. And then there's the recompense of judicial removal. Look at verse 11. I say then are they stumbled that they should fall, God forbid, but rather through their se- fall salvation is coming to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world. Now he's talking about the fall of them. Their removal. What's the removal? The fall of Israel. The fall of them means their removal from the place of blessing by the Lord, the place of uh, favor by the Lord. And God removed them from that place of favor. Verse 11, it says their fall. Verse 12 mentions their fall. Verse 15 mentions their casting away of them. And verse 17 mentions the branches being broken off from the olive tree. See, olive tree was the symbol of the blessing of the Lord. The root of the olive tree was probably the Abrahamic covenant through which Israel and Gentiles are blessed. And so the root of the olive tree, and then attached to that root, that root, or coming from that root was the tree, and there were branches on the tree, and the Bible says the children of Israel were the natural branches on that tree. God was blessing them. But God became the place and time where God says, all right, because of your rebellion, I'm going to break you off, and I'm not going to be blessing you like that again, or for a long time, and that's what the Lord is doing today. And they're broken off from that place of blessing. But there's coming a day when God's going to restore them. But the breaking off of the branches is evidence that God was recompense, giving recompense to them. And so today you don't see God using the children of Israel. You don't see God using them as he originally planned to, to uh, tell the world about God or tell the world about Jesus. We don't have Jewish evangelists. I mean, there's some, but they're very rare. They're usually Gentile evangelists, and God is using the church today. He's not using Israel. But so there's the recompense of Israel. But then there's the reconciling of the world. The reconciling of the world. We find that word in verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. Reconciling of the world. Israel's fall brought salvation to the Gentiles, the reconciling of the world. Because of Israel's fall, the Lord turned his attention from Jewish, favoring the Jewish nation until reaching the Gentiles. And Saul, Saul or Paul became an a apostle to the Gentiles, and he spread the word throughout the known world at that time because that was God's will for him to reach the Gentiles. So the recompense that Israel experience and God judging them and dealing with them resulted in the reconciling of the world, the gospel going to all the world. So Israel's fall brought salvation to the Gentiles. Verse 11 says, through their fall is, is come, it, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Verse 12, riches of the world, the riches of the Gentiles. Verse, thir- verse 15, the casting of them way, uh, away of them be the reconciling of the world. And John 1.11, he came into his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. He came into his own, they received him not. So what did he do? He turned to the Gentiles, and they received him. And many of us, well, all of us, I imagine, here today are Gentiles, and we've received Christ as their Savior. That's a result of God 
recompense to Israel turning to the Gentiles. And Israel's fall brought a favored position to the Gentiles. That is not only he saved them, but he put them in a place of favor. So it pictures in this passage that God takes away the, the natural branches who would not believe in him, and he put in place the uh, wild branches that would believe him, and so it's a place of favor. And so today, the church, which is largely a Gentile church, there are Jews in, in the church as well, but largely a Gentile church, God is using them as the place of favor. So you look back on the board there today, and who are the missionaries? I don't believe there's any missionaries back there that are Jews. They're all Gentiles reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And God has put us in that place of favor. And what a blessing that is to be used of the Lord in that way. In this church age, God's calling out a people for his name. Jews and Gentiles, but mostly Gentiles. And we have the favored position of being used by God to spread the gospel to all the world. God is blessing the the Gentiles. That was mentioned in Acts chapter 15. And it's... Peter was preaching, he said, God did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's what the Lord's doing today. God is visiting the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. And so Israel's fall brought a favored position for the Gentiles. But then next to the last point is the receiving of Israel. Look at verse 15 again. The two points are found there. Reconciling the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? There is coming a day when God's going to receive Israel back into that place of favor. Israel will be received by God. They will be, adopt, they will be accepted by him in that favored position. But verse 15 says, receiving them be but life from the dead. Israel will be grafted back into a place of favor in that olive tree. So God's taken out the, the natural branches, put in the the unnatural branches, the wild olive, and put it in and blessed us as Gentiles. But the day will come when God will graft back in the children of Israel uh, to that place of favor, and he will use them. And that day is coming. That day is coming where Israel in the millennial kingdom will be, you might say this term, but probably not a good term, top dog. (laughs) Favored nation status. By who? By the king. Who's the king? Jesus. Jesus will have a favored nation status and it will be Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. So all through these ages, the world has been against Israel, down on Israel, and a place like the United States who sort of stands alone in in ways as their support for Israel and no one supports them like we do and yet that is changing. But the Lord says uh, the day will come when God will graft them back in and they'll have a very favored position and God will use them uh, in a great way. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, and it explains this. Zechariah chapter 12. Ezekiel also, and you can look at that that later, but I just want to look, we'll read uh, Zechariah today. Zechariah 12, verse 10. It says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The day is coming when Jesus is going to return. And when he does, Israel 
is going to turn to the Lord. Now, the Bible says that two-thirds of them will not believe on him, and the Lord will deal with them. But one-third of them will believe on him. They'll look on him whom they've pierced. You can imagine it. Like, they see Jesus coming, and they think, oh, my. All these ages and all of our ancestors, they've turned against and rejected Jesus, and he is the Messiah. What the Christians have been telling us all along is true. He is the Messiah, and they'll see him in all of his power and his glory, and they will repent and believe and trust Jesus as their Savior. That's going to happen. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. In that day there should be a fountain open to the house of David, that's Israel, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for cleanness. Look at verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. And then verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and try them as gold is tried, they shall, that they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. You don't see that today. Israel's in the land, but they're there in unbelief. But this is them responding to Jesus himself, and they will trust Jesus as their personal Savior. That day is coming. The reception will also come when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the Bible mentions the times of the Gentiles. That's mentioned in uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 24. It speaks of Daniel's vision of that great, or Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great great image. Remember the golden head, and that was Babylon, and the silver uh, arms and and breasts was Medes and Persians, the brass belly and thighs was Greece, and the legs of iron, and then the toes were iron and clay. The Bible says that's the Gentile world powers they're going to rule. And the last one was Rome, the iron, and then there'll be the revived Roman Empire during the, during the tribulation period, which will be the iron toes mixed with clay. That's going to be the Antichrist and his government. But you remember what happens in that, in that passage? A great stone cut out of the mountains without hand will come down and hit the foot of that image, and it'll all disintegrate. It'll all be killed. And that, and that, that stone will, will, will grow to fill the whole earth. And that stone is Jesus. Jesus will conquer the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles will be destroyed. But here it mentions the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of Gentiles, that that period of spiritual blessings to the Gentiles, and it's probably the day we're in right now, the fullness of the Gentiles, and it will be finished probably when Jesus raptures the church and takes us out. And so the Lord says, that reception by Israel of the Lord and the Lord receiving them will come at the end of the fullness of the Gentiles. And then we close by looking at the riches of God's wisdom. This is considered the greatest doxology in all the Bible by many. And it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? 
For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now from that passage, I see some things about God. First of all, he's unsearchable. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You cannot put God in a test tube. You cannot figure him all out. That's the danger we spoke of earlier in chapter 9 of people uh, who believe in the sovereignty of God and they eliminate, because of human logic, they eliminate the responsibility of man. And the Bible says those things do not contradict, even though they might in your mind. But you just need to say, oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God is unsearchable. You cannot find out everything about God. Believe it, because everything about him is good. Believe it. But God is also unteachable. Now, if I as a pastor am unteachable, I'm not a good pastor. If I can't be corrected by someone, if somebody can't come up and say, Pastor, you know you said this, but you know the Bible says in this other place, and I I say, oh, you're right. Maybe I was wrong. I should be able to say that. I should be teachable. But there's one person in all the universe who is not teachable, and that's God. You can't teach him anything. I mean, do any of you want to straighten God out? Do any of you want to tell him some nugget of knowledge that you've learned that maybe he doesn't know? God's unteachable. He knows everything, so you can't teach him anything. And so God is unteachable. Verse 34, for who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Who instructs the Lord? It's not a good idea to instruct the Lord. And then also, he's unbribable. Not a good English word, but you know what bribing means? Well, it says in verse 35, Oh, who hath, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? Lord, I gave you this. You, deserve, you, you owe me this. No, you can't bribe God. You can't bargain with God. You can't do any of that. God is unbribable. And then finally, God's undefeatable. I don't know if that's the best word to use, but notice what it says. For of him, of him, that's the source, are all things. All things come from God. All things, everything in the universe comes from God. All of your abilities come from the Lord. I have another eye appointment in... Uh, well, I have one Monday, but I have another surgery coming up. And sometimes in that one, I've had a, had a conversation with the surgeon already. But I want to ask him, I, I said, sir, you know, you, you operate on the eye. Have you ever been just totally impressed with the magnitude of God's uh, wisdom and what he does and how he made the eye? You know, what, a year or so ago, we lost Bob Duvall. How old was Bob? He was 102 years old. You know what he still had? the eyeball that God gave him. It worked for 102 years. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's amazing the things that God gives us and what God does. And so uh, it, all things come from God. Of him are all things. Through him are all things. So he's the source. He's also the sustainer. Through him are all things. He's the one that keeps us going. I mean, how can you turn against God when God's the one that keeps you from falling apart? God's the one that keeps you going. God keeps everything, keeps the universe going. And so he's a great God, and uh, he's, un, he's uh, undefeatable because he is the, 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 the source of everything. He's the sustainer of all, everything. But then notice this, to who, uh, 
for of him and through him and to him are all things. He's the goal of everything. Everything, the goal of everything is to bring honor and glory to God. And so you can say, well, if everything came from him and he keeps everything going and he's the goal of everything, then you surely can't defeat him. Nobody's going to win over the Lord. And so he's undefeatable. And so this passage, which deals with things that sometimes are hard to understand, Paul ends by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And ends by saying, he deserves all the glory and all the praise. Yes, I believe that Israel has a future with the Lord, and he's going to make sure that happens to them. They're going to receive the blessings that God had promised them in the millennial reign of Christ. The question is, are we going to receive God's blessings? There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. God's not through with Israel. The Bible says it's so. The day will come he'll once again bless them, don't you know? He'll gather them from all the lands where they are scattered now and bring them to their promised land. The Bible tells us how. And once they're gathered by the Lord whose offer they declined, two-thirds will die, one-third survive, as silver they'll be refined. They'll trust the one who died for them. He'll call them his people fulfill in them his promises, and prove that he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for reminding us of this wonderful truth that you're not through with Israel. You have a purpose and a plan, and you will fulfill that. I pray, Lord, that we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior might love the Jew because they're your people, and may we desire to see them saved and give us opportunity to share the gospel with them. Bless each today, and I pray if there's anyone here not saved, that they'll trust you before it's too late. In Jesus' name we pray.